Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. Have you ever played poker against a computer? Poker against a computer? No, I'm really not a gambler. They've got a really good poker face. <sighs> oh, oh. You're listening to Linear Digressions. <laughs> so that's one of three topics we're talking about. We're talking about poker and two others. Want to take it away? Yeah. So this is under the general topic of neural nets. They so smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's just kind of like a fun little roundup here. And uh, a lot of these were suggestions actually from our listeners. So um, the first one comes to us from Alex. Uh, this is, we'll talk about the poker one. So um, as we've we've talked about neural nets and how they've been used to play expert level Go, how there are algorithms that uh, play chess, and now we can add poker to the list of games at which computers are better than humans. Is poker actually that complicated of a game? I'm not I'm not a poker player myself. You know, and it's funny, I was a little bit hoping that you were and that you could <laughs> explain to me the rules of poker because I Oh no. I myself struggled a bit with this paper because it it assumes that you know anything about poker, which I do not. Um but yeah, so one of the things that makes poker kind of interesting relative to let's take the example of chess. So the thing about chess is it's a game of what's called perfect information. So you and I can both see the board and the board contains all the information that there is to know in this game. And since you right. and I can both see it, we both know everything there is to know about this game. And it's just an issue of who does better with that, with those circumstances. Yeah. It's also stateless because if you, if you just look at a board and jump into a chess game, assuming you know whose turn it is, you can pick up from that point if you're given enough time to kind of study the board and figure out what your situation is too. Yeah, that's a fair point. That is, as the gameplay progresses, there's some sense in which, um, you know, the the game has a history in the sense that, like, you get a sense for how the other person is playing. And so poker has a little bit of an analog in that sense. Your adversary is another human, and there's sort of some aspect right. of how aggressively they're playing and things like that. But um, that's right, that the move that was played a few moves ago doesn't come back to influence what's happening in this move, except because except in the way that like the pieces are where they are um but in the context of poker the order in which the cards are being played has implications for the cards that could be played later in the round and that's how people count cards basically and end up um you know sometimes you can beat the odds so to speak by counting cards because then you know which cards are more likely to come up later in the game so interesting so poker is basically then a game of probability in a sense assuming that you're not counting cards or actually, even if you are counting cards, uh, you are trying to either guess or discern from sheer probability or by looking at signals like the person's facial expressions, what cards they have in their hand that they know they have that you don't know they have. Well, yeah. And so where chess is a game of perfect information, poker is a game of incomplete information. Oh, I was uh, hoping you were going to say imperfect information because that would be... I so symmetrical well i don't know maybe sometimes you call i'm looking at my notes and i didn't write incomplete or imperfect i don't know what the what the term of art is here usually Mm -hmm. but yeah the general idea is that there's you and i can both see the cards that are on the table but of course i have the cards in my hand that you don't know about and vice versa and so both of us have sort of this incomplete picture of what's going on. So I have some idea of what cards maybe are more likely to come up later in the game because I've been watching what's going on. Of course, I know the cards that are in my hand and how well those sort of complement the the cards that are on the table. 
but I have to kind of guess about what your cards might be. That's pretty cool. Yeah. The other thing that's kind of fun about poker is it has this significant human competition aspect to it. So you're trying to guess what the other person is going to do. The, the human sort of style of gameplay, I think, is very significant in poker. because you're trying to outbid the other person. Um, so it's, it starts to wander uh, fairly quickly into like game theory. And the paper I was reading was talking about like Nash equilibria and, and maximizing expected utilities when you're playing against the, the best response opponent strategy and all this sort of thing. And the general idea here, the the algorithm that um, is in this paper, it's called Deep Stack, uh, is mostly, from what I can tell, beating the humans. And the general idea that they have is implementing this idea called counterfactual regret minimization. So this is a little bit starting to merge the ideas of some like sort of reinforcement learning and a little bit of game theory and sort of adversarial reinforcement learning and things like that, multi-agent type situations. Um, and the general idea here is that Uh, you're setting up an algorithm that will learn, heuristically speaking, it'll learn from the times it wishes it had behaved differently in the past. So Mm. I saw a scenario that looked like this. Here's what I did. It didn't work out very well. I'm going to learn something from that. Or it did work out fine. And I'm going to learn something from that. Yeah. Hence the word regret and uh, reinforcement learning. Yep. In that big bundle of words that you said. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then the last part of that, of course, is that then you're also working in a world in which you're playing many games one after the other sort of sequentially and there's many plays that sort of follow in in a chain the way that they do in a round of poker so don't go up against a computer in poker anymore because you will probably lose your money oh i definitely would so thank you alex for sending that over um the next two are actually both from the same person uh so these are from kirtane picking them in no particular order uh the first one (laughs) this is kind of cute Neural nets. So one of the things about neural nets, if you've ever tried to actually build a neural net, is that there's a lot of choices that you have with respect to the architecture that you can use. So how many layers deep is it going to be? How many hidden nodes do you have in each layer? What type of activation function are you using? And so even though neural nets seem like, oh, it's just like that's the name of the algorithm, and then we just use that algorithm, there's actually a lot of substructure in it that can be, you know, depending on what choices you make there, can have a significant impact on how effective your algorithm is. So here's a question. When people talk about deep neural nets, is that is that just neural nets, but multiple, like many, many levels deep? Yeah. yeah. Like many layers? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So the variability that you can get between different neural nets uh, just by tweaking this, uh, t- tweaking the number of levels or uh, other parameters is significant enough that people actually refer to them with different names. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, deep neural nets, right, is just meaning that it has lots of levels. Um, I don't know that there's anyone who would say that there's a huge difference between, uh, I don't know, a seven-layer neural net and an eight-layer neural net and say one of those right. is deep and one of those is definitely or whatever. between two and eight, definitely. Oh, yeah, that definitely makes a difference. And again, depending on also the internal structure of the neural net, again, very often that's not going to be something that you get just in the name of the neural net. Like hopefully it's in the paper somewhere that you're reading Mm -hmm. or in the code. But sort of all the internal details of how the neural net is constructed um, sometimes get like swept under the rug slightly when we speak about them, but they end up being really important. And it's hard to know a priori necessarily exactly what values those should take. I think if you work with neural nets a lot, you probably get a little bit of a sense for 
what some reasonable values are for these parameters. But in general, you know, it, it's a lot of degrees of freedom. It almost seems like if you're talking about gaining an intuition about what values might work, that almost feels like the job for a machine learning algorithm or something. <laughs> oh, right. And that's exactly where we're going. So oh, my the God. Idea, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so one way that you can pick the architecture of your neural net is you can just try every architecture of which right. there are hypothetically infinitely many. So that yeah, sounds that like it's going to take you a, a while. But if you imagine that there's a controller neural net that's running something like a reinforcement oh. learning algorithm, so it's learning sequentially, and it has uh, sort of the agency, so to speak, to make changes to the internal structure and some of these parameters of the neural net that it's trying to do. So let's say you have a neural net that's just trying... To, just to yeah. be clear, you're talking about a neural net making neural nets. Yes. And that learning how to best make neural nets. Right. So you have the neural net that you're actually trying to build. So let's say it's an image classifier or something. Uh, there are a couple of different examples in this paper. One's an image classifier and one is a, a language task. Uh, so you have a convolutional neural net and a, a recurrent neural net, two different architectures. And then you have those neural nets. There's sort of like a, a an objective function that you can attach to them, which is something like how well are they doing on the tasks that they're trying to solve in the test data set. So, you know, what's the accuracy of the neural net, so to speak. And then you have a controller neural net that's tweaking the parameters of the other neural net in ways that hopefully end up in the long run optimizing it with respect to something like the accuracy. That's really cool. Did this work out really well? Yeah, it seems to work pretty well. Um, from what I can tell, the results are, I would say, competitive with sort of standard state-of-the-art benchmarks for the, the learning tasks that they were looking at. I don't think they were able to quite universally beat the best, best sort of hand-tuned neural nets for most of these cases, but they were competitive with some of the, with some of the very good ones. Um, and so if you, I'm not sure that building a neural net that builds neural nets is much faster than just building the neural net itself, like the first <laughs> or the second or the third time you do it. Right. But presumably in the long run, uh, this could be a much faster way to experiment with different neural net architectures. And it seems like it gives pretty good results. Does that take us to uh, topic number three? It does. So topic number three, again, from Curtain, um, who's really doing us a solid this week with all this stuff to talk about. Um, so this is uh, the first paper out of Apple Research. As you may have heard, Apple has recently started its own research department. I did uh, not sort of like, hear that. Uh, yeah, this was, I think, late 2016 was when this started. It's like academic right. research. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and so the first paper that they have put out is about generative adversarial networks and using those to make training data. So general generative adversarial networks we talked about a while back is the general idea that you have two different neural nets. One of them is a generative neural net. So that means it's capable of making uh, examples of the class that it's been trained on or, you know, sort of generating examples. Mm. And then the other one is a discriminative neural net which is trying to tell the difference between two classes. Uh, and so the generative neural net is making examples of that are similar to usually the data that it was trained on. So if you imagine a generative neural net version of an image classifier, this is a neural net that's capable of generating images that look kind of similar to the images that it was trained on. So then the idea is you take those generated images, the sort of original true images, 
and you send them into the discriminative neural net, which tries to tell the difference between the real images and the fake one. And then that information gets propagated back to the generative network, which tries to make improvements so that it's harder for the discriminative network to tell the difference. And we kind of compared it to cops and robbers, basically. Right. They they each kind of advance, and that advances the next, and then they, that advances the first, and that advances the second, and they go around in the circle, and ultimately, hopefully, uh, to some end. In this case, it seems generating uh, sample data that you can use for some purpose. Yeah, so the real point of this exercise is to make that generative network really good so that it can generate training data that you can then use in a supervised algorithm. So this is training data that's fake, but it looks real. Okay. And so specifically what Apple was interested in in doing was trying to identify hand gestures. This is presumably for mobile uses and also to detect where people are looking. So kind of like eye focus type image recognition type things. These are two cases where labeled, you know, quote unquote, real data is expensive. And historically, the simulation data has not always been particularly high quality. Um, And so this was actually like a a practical problem that they wanted to solve of how we can have lots of cheap, high quality data to train on here. And so what the, the system that they came up with, they call it simulated and unsupervised. So they started with kind of low, I wouldn't say it's low quality simulated data, but let's say it's, you know, not quite good enough for the purposes they, they wanted to use it for. So you start with this middling quality simulated data, and then they take unsupervised images from, um, of like eyes and gestures and things like that. And they use the unsupervised images to refine the simulated data. So it's this combination of unlabeled real images and labeled simulations and you bring them together and you have the real images improve the simulations. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. And so in general, the goal is to have your generative network. They, they call sort of the important part of the generative network here, the refiner. The idea being that you start with kind of this rough image that's a simulation mm-hmm. and then you refine it with this unlabeled data. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to refine your data, fool your discriminator, Um, but making sure that you maintain the label that was assigned to the simulated image when it was simulated. So we're keeping sort of the labels present on our data, attached to our data. The other idea is they penalize making large changes to the simulation. So the idea is the simulation gets it pretty close, and then you just want to make fairly minor tweaks to it with the unlabeled images. And in particular, I thought this was kind of interesting. There's a priority of keeping fidelity in subspaces of the image and not just globally. The idea is like, imagine that you have a picture of an eye and you're gonna be making some refinements to this picture of an eye that you wanna make sure that those refinements make sense even if you were to zoom in a little bit. So, and not just on a, not just on a big sale. So for example, if you're looking at the corner of the eye, that the corner of the eye looks like it's a high quality simulation or a high quality image. Um, you don't have, say, eyelashes that are pointing out in weird directions or strange little, I don't know, artifacts in the image. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not just the idea, of course, we should, we should in general keep the, the shape and orientation of the eye mostly the same, but we should also be paying some attention to some of the detail as well and that that's an important part to, to focus on. And in general, you can imagine that um, if you don't pay particular attention to detail, that kind of stuff can be easy to miss. Uh, so I thought that was pretty cool also. Awesome. So thanks to the two people who wrote in, Kirtan and... Alex. 
Alex, that's right. Keep sending us stuff. We like reading your tweets and, and all that stuff. It's also nice to know that our uh, podcast mechanism is still working and that people are listening. So that's good. <laughs> Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.